Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caprola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, June 23rd through Tuesday, the 28th, feature Riccardo Muti conducting concert performances of Verdi's opera A Masked Ball, Un Ballo in Mascara. The cast includes tenor Francesco Melli, baritone Luca Salsi, and soprano Joyce L. Curry. Verdi's Un Ballo in Mascara performance time is about 50 minutes for Act 1, and for Act 2 and 3, about 78 minutes. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Verdi's A Masked Ball. In 1857, Verdi wanted to compose King Lear, his second opera based on Shakespeare, a full decade after the premiere of Macbeth. Instead, in a tale as convoluted as any opera plot, he settled on adapting a lesser French play that went through four distinct settings and at least four different titles in its circuitous route to the stage. Yet, Un Ballo in Mascara, a masked ball as it came to be called, turned out to be one of Verdi's greatest masterworks. A great lover of Shakespeare, Verdi had long wanted to set King Lear to music. At first, he felt that it was so tremendous, so intricate, that it would seem impossible to make an opera of it. But for years, he could not put it out of his mind. He even drew up his own scenario and then asked two different poets to write the text. The first, Salvatore Camarano, the librettist of Lucia de Lammermoor, who died before he finished it, and then Antonio Soma, who made different versions for Verdi, one in 1853 and another two years later. Ray Lear was what Verdi intended to offer the Teatro di San Carlo in Naples for its 1858 season, a year after the premiere of Simon Bocanegra in Venice. But from the beginning, there were problems with casting the big roles, and Verdi started to get cold feet. I am very hesitant about Ray Lear, he confessed early in the summer of 1858. Let me scrounge around among other plays, he wrote to the San Carlo management, and it will be fine when I finally find a subject. He asked Soma to come up with something impassioned and beautiful, passions above all. But when Soma suggested The Monk, Matthew Gregory Lewis's once popular gothic romance, Verdi was not interested. I want a story of feelings, not a spectacle. Verdi then made his own surprising choice, Gustav III, ou Les Bal Masques, by Eugène Scribe, which had already been set to music by at least three composers, in addition to Vincenzo Bellini, who was considering it when he died. After the magnitude and depth of Shakespeare's classic tragedy, this 15-year-old text about Gustavus III, the King of Sweden, who was assassinated at a masked ball in 1792, was an unexpected, controversial choice. It was then highly unusual for opera to tackle events that had taken place within recent times. Even in our day, operas based on contemporary history, such as John Adams' Nixon in China, Philip Glass's Sajat Raha about the life of Gandhi, and Anthony Davis's X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X, have raised eyebrows, but they have gone on stage as their composers intended. Verdi did not have such luck. As early as October 1857, Verdi was warned that the Neapolitan censors would insist on changes, but he was not prepared for the extent of their demands. The characters should be redrawn, relationships altered, the setting and the century changed. In January 1858, the censors drew up a list. The king must become a duke, 
and his love for the married Amelia should be noble and pure, the action should be moved to a pre-Christian land in the north, anywhere except Norway and Sweden, at a time when witchcraft was still a powerful force, there could be no firearms, and the duke was to be killed with a dagger. Gustavus had died from a gunshot. Soma suggested 12th-century Pomerania, with Stetten in place of Stockholm. He also asked to be credited anonymously, claiming that in such politically sensitive times he could write with greater freedom. Verdi thought the time frame was too distant for a Gustav. They settled on the 17th century. There was a new title, Una Vendetta in Domino, and Soma's name became an anagram, Tommaso Annoni. Then, in January 1858, Felice Orsini, an Italian revolutionary, attempted to assassinate Napoleon III as he was on his way to the opera to see Rossini's William Tell. The censors were now even more difficult. They asked Verdi to change his protagonist into a lord, removing any suggestion of sovereignty, to make Amelia a sister rather than a wife, to move the murder off stage to turn the masked ball into a banquet without masks. The scene was now 14th century Florence, and there was a new title, Adelia degli Adimari, Adelia of the Adimari. Verdi was incensed. In matters of art, I have my own ideas and convictions which are clear and precise, and which I neither can nor should give up. Neither Verdi nor Soma wanted anything to do with Adelia degli Adimari. When Verdi learned that he was going to be sued by management, he called on his attorney and proposed canceling the Naples contract. Verdi then turned his attention to writing his own 90-page defense. The case was eventually settled out of court. A key piece of evidence was a Roman poster advertising a theatrical version of Gustavo III that same season. In Rome, they allow Gustavo III as a spoken play, but won't allow a libretto on the same subject, Verdi said. As with the opera setting itself, there was now a change of venue. Verdi had his sights set on a premiere in Rome. In the end, the Roman censors proved more amenable, but the scene of the action still needed to be changed, preferably to somewhere outside Europe. Verdi wrote to Soma, What would you say to North America? At the time of English rule, by August 11, 1858, in a letter to Verdi from Soma, the King of Sweden had at last become Ricardo, Earl of Warwick, an English colonial governor living in 17th century Boston, Massachusetts. By September, there was yet another new title. This one stuck, Unballo in Mascara, named for the climactic scene the Neapolitan censors wanted to change. All the pieces now fell into place, if in a somewhat haphazard manner, intermingling elements of the original Swedish murder tale, the French libretto of Scribe, its Italian adaptation, and the American setting. The Swedish Count Ankarström, the husband of Ricardo's beloved Amelia, is now Renato, the Massachusetts governor's secretary. The conspirators, originally Counts Ribbing and Horn, are now Samuel and Tom. The premiere in Rome's Teatro Apollo in February of 1859 was a huge success, as great as any Verdi had witnessed in years. He was called to the footlights more than 20 times. 
The run of performances was sold out. Tickets were hawked on the street for twice the printed price. Ovations grew in size each night. Verdi said he thought the fourth performance went magnificently. Despite its tortured genesis, Unvalo y Mascara would quickly take its place as one of Verdi's most masterful scores. Of the half-dozen operas between La Traviata and Aida, Unvalo y Mascara has enjoyed the most consistent success over the decades. Conventional in outline, yet visionary in realization, it overflows with the melodic richness of his earlier success, but is bolstered by a more sophisticated use of the orchestra and structured more tightly even than the operas that immediately followed La Forza del Destino and Don Carlos. Unbalo y Mascara is, at its heart, a classic opera, as elegant in its formal design, in its respect for proportion, symmetry, and balance, and in its reliance on conventional building materials as a great Palladian villa. Its blueprint is a stream of musical numbers, arias and duets, a trio, quartets, and quintets, but they are all treated with remarkable flexibility and freedom. Verdi is moving toward a kind of opera that is more fluid but also more concise, more reliant on the dramatic power of a single phrase or the simplest change of harmony. Unbalo y Mascara is in one sense the gateway to the great masterworks of Verdi's last years. Only five new operas follow it in the remaining 34 years of his career. But at the same time, it's also the product of the great hitmaker of the mid-century Italian opera stage, the logical descendant of Rigoletto and La Traviata. It is a score that pushes opera forward without giving up the strengths of the tradition. Throughout Unbalo y Mascara, Verdi juggles gravity and humor, comedy and tragedy in a natural, true-to-life manner. In that sense, it is highly Shakespearean. In the very opening number, Verdi clouds the peaceful chorus of Ricardo's officers with the ominous staccato asides of the conspirators, Samuel and Tom. That kind of interplay of light and dark colors the entire opera, reaching its peak in grand ensembles such as the quintet at the end of Act I, when Ricardo's light-hearted jesting, a scherzo o de folia, rides unconcerned over the fearful musings of the others. Above all, Unbalo y Mascara breathes with the spirit Verdi most urgently desired from this opera, a story of feelings, passions above all. In Verdi's entire catalog, there is not a duet as impassioned, rising to an almost unhinged outburst of emotion as that between Amelia and Ricardo that lies at the center of Act II, precisely at the very heart of the opera. The climax is as breathtaking in its own way as the Act II love duet in Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, but where Wagner writes pages of vast paragraphs, Verdi needs but a handful of phrases. Wagner completed the second act of Tristan and Isolde in Venice in February 1859. Some 300 miles to the south, Verdi's Unbalo in Mascara was unveiled in Rome that same month. Verdi never did write Re Lear. Soma's libretto is still kept in the archives at Verdi's villa in Sant'Agata near Parma, where he lived out his days. The two Shakespearean operas that Verdi did eventually write in the glory of his final years, Otello, completed in 1887, and Falstaff in 1893, are so richly satisfying that the loss of Lear is easily overlooked. 
but the score that took its place with its polyglot cast of characters, unique American setting, and lavish melodic splendor is a score quite unlike any other work of Verdi's, a high point of 19th century Italian art that we would not want to be without. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Verdi's opera A Masked Ball, Un Ballo in Mascara. And here is the synopsis of the opera. The opera takes place in Boston around the year 1700. Act 1, Scene 1, A Hall in the Governor's Mansion. Ricardo, the Earl of Warwick and Governor of Boston, greets the people who are seeking an audience, unaware that among them are the conspirators Samuel and Tom, who are plotting to kill him. Ricardo's page, Oscar, hands him the guest list for a masked ball the governor is giving. On it is Amelia, with whom he is secretly in love, even though she is the wife of Renato, his best friend. Renato enters and tries to warn Ricardo of a conspiracy against him, but the governor refuses to believe him. The chief justice asks Ricardo to banish the fortune teller, Ulrica. Instead, Ricardo invites everyone to join him in visiting her. Scene 2, Ulrica's Dwelling. The sailor, Silvano, asks Ulrica to predict his future. When she says he will get money and a promotion, Ricardo, disguised as a fisherman, slips the promotion and some money into Silvano's pocket. The crowd is dismissed so that a lady may consult Ulrica privately, but Ricardo hides and hears Amelia ask how she can overcome her love for him. Ulrica tells her that she must gather a magic herb at midnight from beneath the gallows outside the city. After Amelia leaves, everyone returns, and Ricardo asks for a reading. Ulrica says he is a great man, and then refuses to say any more. Ricardo insists, and Ulrica declares that the next man who shakes his hand will take his life. Ricardo laughs it off, and when Renato arrives and shakes his hand, everyone agrees the prophecy has to be false. Act 2. Midnight, the gallows outside Boston. Amelia is gathering the magic herbs when Ricardo appears and declares his love for her. She resists, but finally admits she loves him too. Their tryst is suddenly interrupted by Renato, who warns Ricardo that conspirators are approaching to kill him. Amelia has hidden her face with a veil, and Ricardo orders Renato to escort this mysterious woman back to the city without trying to identify her. When the conspirators arrive, led by Samuel and Tom, they are furious to discover Renato, not the governor. They demand to know who his companion is. Renato draws his sword to protect her, but Amelia drops her veil to avoid any bloodshed. The conspirators think it is a huge joke that Renato would meet his own wife in such a place. But Renato is livid at what he thinks is a betrayal by his best friend, and he invites Samuel and Tom to come to his house. Act 3, Scene 1, A Study in Renato's House Renato refuses to believe Amelia is innocent, and he tells her that she must die. Tom and Samuel enter, and Renato tells them he knows all about the plot to kill the governor and that he wishes to join them. They decide to draw lots to determine who will do the deed. When Amelia announces that Oscar has arrived with an invitation from Ricardo, she is ordered to draw the name. It is Renato's. Oscar invites everyone to a grand masked ball at the governor's mansion, and while the conspirators decide on their costumes, Amelia desperately seeks a way to warn Ricardo. 
Scene 2, The Count's Study. Ricardo decides the only honorable thing to do is to send Renato and Amelia back to England. Oscar brings him an anonymous letter warning that an attempt will be made on his life at the ball, but Ricardo ignores it so that he can see Amelia one last time. Scene 3, A Ballroom. Renato asks Oscar what costume Ricardo is wearing. At first, the page refuses to tell him, but then reveals the costume is a black cape with a red ribbon on the breast. When Amelia begs Ricardo to leave the ball, he tells her that he is sending her and her husband away. As they bid each other farewell, Renato steps between them and stabs the governor. The wounded Ricardo insists that Amelia is innocent and gives his friend the signed orders, sending them back to England. Ricardo pardons all the conspirators and then dies. The synopsis for the opera Un Ballo in Mascara and program notes by Philip Usher. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.